from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Cyberspace. Diplomats are now involved in it. Everybody has noticed that uh, cyberspace is a new domain of uh, both civilian and military activities. And the diplomats are now talking about what kind of um, behavior is allowed or not allowed by the governments in cyberspace. Haley Tirma Klar is the ambassador at large for cybersecurity for the Estonian government, arguably one of the U.S.'s closest allies when it comes to cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is a very difficult problem. So where are they in terms of trying to put some rules in place for cybersecurity? We are somewhere, I think, in the beginning of the beginning. So what are the key challenges? Who are the key problems? And what are the key threats? All those answers coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The international community is trying to figure out cyberspace. Countries are not sure how to defend themselves from the pernicious, murky actors that can range in size from single individuals to entire countries. Admiral Manfred Nielsen, NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Transformation, said, you can see ships, aircraft, and tanks, but you can't see algorithms and everything else that comes along with cyberspace. Haley Tirma-Klar is Estonia's ambassador at large for cybersecurity. She sat down with me in Estonia to talk about what they're trying to accomplish. How does cybersecurity uh, fit into uh, your ambassador's role? What is the, what is the key objective there? Uh, well, I am ambassador at large for cybersecurity, which means that uh, this is my uh, dominant uh, field of concentration. Um, we, uh, the diplomats, are not uh, looking at the cyber issues from the technical angle, but at the strategic angle. So, uh, of course, everybody has noticed that uh, cyberspace is a new domain of uh, uh, both civilian and military activities. And uh, the diplomats are now talking about what kind of um, behavior is allowed or not allowed by the governments in cyberspace. Um, in other fields, we have very uh, clear uh, rules of road, mm -hmm. uh, uh, how we are containing our capabilities, when we are using our capabilities, when we are refraining from using our capabilities. The same set of rules needs to be set in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have the discussions at the United Nations level and at a uh, global level, what kind of norms should govern the state behavior in cyberspace and what kind of uh, confidence-building measures we should have or, or how we should follow the international law. 
because this uh, domain cannot be ungoverned domain. It has to have some certain set of rules. Where are we in terms of developing these rules? So we are, um, I'm always saying class is half full because I am an optimist by nature. But um, we are somewhere, I think, um, in the beginning of the beginning, actually, because uh, uh, we have um, voluntary political non-binding norms agreed at the UN. Uh, there have been uh, groups of governmental experts on cybersecurity coming together in the United Nations and discussing what kind of... Uh, political norms government should subscribe to. So we have the set of rules in a way at the UN level, also endorsed by the UN General Assembly. The question is whether the countries are really following those rules. That was my next question. Some are and some are not. <laughs> so. and, and therefore the um, uh, implementation of those norms uh, is still the work in progress. Then we have the regional confidence-building measures, which we have agreed at the OSCE. OSCE is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or ASEAN Regional Forum, or OAS. And in those regional formations, the confidence-building um, mechanisms are built, which is very positive. Um, then we have international law, which applies, whether we have it in the applying on uh, the physical domains of uh, sea, land, air or space mm -hmm. or man-made domain called cyberspace. So the same law applies. So therefore we can um, uh, do some additional analysis and additional work analyzing how the law applies. But uh, it is clear that international law applies also to cyber domain mm -hmm. and also governs the state behavior in cyber domain. Also making um, all these uh, claims that um, governments should not attack the civilian infrastructure without uh, military purpose. Governments, if they need to do some cyber operations, it has to be a proportional. It has to uh, follow the long-established rules of international law. So, uh, basically, uh, the jury is still out there how exactly some parts of the international law apply in cyber domain, yes. Mm -hmm. But the international law should apply. Mm -hmm. Not all governments agree with this, that yeah. law should apply. So we, in the Western liberal democracies, we are claiming that, yes, the international law should apply also in cyber domain. However, there are other governments saying that there should be new laws for cyber domain, which we don't believe there should be, because the cyber domain is any other, like any other domain, and if we have certain set of rules governing the state behavior in all those other domains... This also has to happen in cyber domain. So you mentioned this um, concept or actually actuality of governments attacking, launching attacks that are based on cyber attacks. And I, I, I may be in error here, but I think that recently there was some reporting regarding Israel um, launching an attack on um, some facility that they believed was a location of uh, a cyber attack. Uh, is this the kind of um, situation you're referring to where the rules of uh, a kinetic attack on a physical structure must apply to a situation like that? Certainly. 
the same rule should apply in kinetic structure or in the cyber domain, the mm-hmm. same. Um, what is Estonia contributing to this dialogue and in, in what, what are you bringing to the table? You've had some um, um, very uh, hard to characterize the, the, just the, the amount of difficulty you had uh, 12 years ago. Um, but you've had an experience that taught you a lot that you are now sharing with the world. So what are you bringing to the table to your uh, counterparts and the others, others in, the, in the world community when it comes to this policy or this approach uh, to dealing with uh, cybersecurity? Uh, since Estonia ha- happened to experience the first ever large-scale coordinated cyber attacks in 2007, and Estonia was mitigating those attack- attacks quite successfully. Then, uh, yes, the interest among the um, wider community in the world is still high against uh, towards Estonia. And we receive um, roughly 100 official delegations a year uh, asking for our experience and, um, and also requiring our expertise, how we built a resilient cyber system. So uh, how we built the resilient cyber system? I think we built it um, as an effort of all, all different parties involved, uh, both public sector and the private sector. Because in the cyber domain, you might know that uh, private sector owns majority of the infrastructure. It's a man-made domain run by the private sector. Governments have a minuscule role when it comes to running this domain. When you look at the cables or routers or international telecommunications infrastructure, it's all the all companies who run it. So the question is what the governments can do. And is, is there anything that governments can do in this domain? Yes, in Estonian case, government is providing the incentives for cooperation for all these different entities uh, that are making up the wider cyber resilience ecosystem in the country. So we have um, several uh, mechanisms and several structures to ensure that there is a coordination between the technical experts, then the policy makers, and then also the higher level decision makers when it comes to cyber issues. Um, With the first Estonian cybersecurity strategy after the 2007 attacks, we set the major parameters of this national cyber system, which has evolved ever since. We set uh, the clear uh, understanding that um, those private sector companies which are providing the critical services for the society uh, should face higher standards in cybersecurity. And the government is offering them training and education and other cooperation incentives. And... um, and we are also ensuring that there is um, constant training of um, of our uh, cyber workforce, uh, not only in the government and in the critical infrastructure companies, but also in the wider ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, this kind of um, um, national cyber power is made up of, of clearly both sides, governmental side and also the, the, the non-governmental side, because uh, you have to put all the forces together in order to be properly able to protect your cyberspace. What are the major threats to cyberspace right now, or or should I say who? 
how would you define them and where they're coming from? There are different layers of threats. You know, do you have uh, the usual risk management approach here when we talk about cyber threats? So the risk management approach approach would um, inform you that you have the uh, low probability, high effect threats, which are always there. And uh, those are more politically motivated cyber attacks, the nation state uh, originated cyber attacks, um, which might happen, but they usually happen if there is another, you know, the broader political context of uh, worsening of relationships or so on. Then you have a majority of the cyber attacks these days are of, uh, of criminal nature. And uh, most of our private sector entities are receiving um, uh, criminal attacks or economically motivated attacks against the banks or, or other private sector entities. And then there are, uh, maybe not in the, in the Estonian case specifically, but um, in, um, in a broader spectrum of cyber threats, when you talk about uh, um, cyber threats, you have the... the um, different um, groups that would like to do something in cyberspace, whether they are having the political motivation or they are having uh, some um, activist agenda or, or whatever other agenda. And then you have an interesting group of uh, actors, which are the proxy actors, who claim to be not related to the governments, but after some time, uh, after some attribution process, you find out that actually they were related to some governments mm-hmm. and they were acting on behalf of the governments. So and these are the most difficult because they are, um, these are the attacks that um, are hard to uh, maybe pinpoint in the first place. Uh, once you do it, it's hard to respond because uh, uh, since the governments don't claim the responsibility, then the question is how you... how to make the response effective so that those governments would not either direct those operations or, 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 or not try to hide these operations or not try to do these operations. So the most brilliant examples of those kind of uh, activities were um, two recent very large-scale uh, malware attacks, WannaCry and NotPetya. Uh, WannaCry uh, was later on attributed to North Korea and NotPetya was attributed to the Russian military intelligence. Both GRU. GRU. Both um, malwares spread very quickly globally and created a major disruption in many businesses and uh, required um, mitigation by many governments and private sector actors. Interestingly, Estonia was not hit by those because our prevention work was so good. So this is uh, the main reason why I'm here today talking to you because, Mm -hmm. as I've said to many of your other counterparts today, uh, Estonia is the size of two New Jerseys and uh, it has a population of 1.3 million and it is a real heavyweight when it comes to cybersecurity. So... What was it about your preparation that made you... Obviously, you can't talk about those secrets, but um, your preparation prevented you from being hit by NotPetya or WannaCry. Uh, what was it about it that insulated you? I think uh, majority of, of, of cyber work, uh, what we call prevent, preventive efforts, uh, 
are actually very mediocre, very easy to do, but uh, just taking a lots of attention and uh, lots of um, attention to the details. So it consists of uh, constant patching up of all the systems, a constant information sharing, what kind of uh, vulnerabilities are out there so that all the major uh, government and private sector entities would know what happens and they constantly are prepared and they patch for those uh, new vulnerabilities. In the end, it's a very technical question. And then also the cyber hygiene should be good in the organization so that you minimize the number of the people who would uh, bring some viruses in. And, and so all this um, very uh, every routine, uh, everyday prevention effort is something which is necessary. Mm. It's nothing mysterious about it. Yeah. It's just lots of preventive routine work. The details. I've also gathered since I've been here and talking to a lot of people that this process started a very long time ago, at least um, not long after or perhaps even around the time of the 2007 attack. But it's become uh, a matter of education very at very young ages, this cyber hygiene, this, uh, as your ambassador to Washington put it, whole of country approach to dealing with with cyber that that really takes the power away from the cyber uh, criminal if people are doing what they're supposed to do and they're doing it routinely yeah it doesn't take uh, of course uh, those low probability high end risks still remain if somebody wants to drop a cyber bomb it drops a cyber bomb on you but uh, but those um, I would say the medium level threats that might otherwise hit you. So if somebody still wants to do something, it's still possible, of course. But um, they, uh, you, you, you can minimize certain number of, um, of, uh, of those threats that um, uh, are preventable. So you can minimize those um, known vulnerabilities. You can minimize the risks which you, you can control. There are risks you cannot control, but you can prepare for those risks you can control. One of the jobs of an ambassador is obviously to represent the entity and the work or the objectives, etc. So how do you go about your job as an ambassador um, and your portfolio being cybersecurity? What, what, what is your key uh, uh, metric uh, when engaging with your, your, your counterparts from around the world? Is it to form relationships? Is it to push... Uh, Estonia's program? Is it to create new programs to work together? Just what is your approach to uh, your job? I think uh, it's a mixture of everything what we do. We um, we take part of the global discussions at the UN level. Uh, we are active at the regional organizations. We are EU and NATO member. So Estonia has been a front runner of the EU and NATO cyber policies for 10 years. Basically, we were behind of those policies in those two organizations. Then we are, um, in a way, I think many of, of your fellow countrymen would say that 
Estonians are ahead of the learning curve. <laughs> this is what I have heard for 10 years from the U.S. military. Well, it is true. Um, there is a very strong contingent of Americans who say and believe that uh, Estonia is the world's most technologically advanced country, and I'm sure cyber plays into that. And our military recognizes that. Yeah, I think it's it's also the the way how technology is used here, so that it is used in a routine, everyday um, transactions by all the population. So. Otherwise, technology can be very, uh, you can find much more high-tech maybe um, bubbles in some other places. So I'm sure that if you go to MIT, you you find the labs that are doing some cosmic stuff in cyber. But the the thing here in Estonia is that everybody's using the uh, IT technology for its own routine business, Mm -hmm. which is really, yes, very um, unusual Mm -hmm. that uh, all the persons in this country have this ID card, they do their own transactions, they have the digital signatures, they use it every day until, you know, it's, it's um, even the older generation is trained in a way to use them. It's, it's not that every, like, it's not, maybe not, it's, it's, it's something that is an experiment in a small society. I know that uh, some, uh, the US counterparts would say that it is not scalable. Well, one million is one uh, small state in the US, right? Yeah. Yeah. Take a state of uh, Minnesota, so four million, right? So it's 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 a possibility that you can translate and you can scale it, but of course, uh, you can scale it differently. So either you do it in one organization or you do it in one state, which is a smaller state, or you do it in a county or so on. But of course, there is also important um, notion maybe to notice uh, that the smaller is your um, how. This is a very cyber term. I'm sorry for using this. Okay. Attack surface. Then um, the 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 more probable is that you can control those risks that you need to control. If your attack surface is very large, you have lots of uh, unprotected critical infrastructure, or you you have uh, higher risk, and then your defense methods might be different. Mm-hmm. We have chosen the resilient method or deterrence by denial, or or just to be very uh, resilient. And this is what we are uh, investing in, the resilience. Mm-hmm. Of course, we are also investing into uh, alliance defense because we, Estonia is hosting the NATO Cyber Defense Center here, which is the NATO Research and Training Center for all sorts of cyber issues. Uh, and, and we are also training the alliance um, the military and diplomats here. The NATO Center is uh, uh, doing uh, cyber exercises, uh, which are called lock shields, for yes. more than 1,000 participants every year, which are multinational uh, technical exercises, uh, are considered one of the best in the world. Uh, this summer, we start here at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs with training um, diplomats from the EU and NATO nations uh, on, on cyber diplomacy issues. So. We are. Um, we have become, in a way, some sort of training center for 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 our like-minded community in Cyprus. Mm-hmm. All of that said, um, the people. None of this would work if people didn't do their parts, uh, and Estonia has found a way to get people to buy into it, and a large part of it clearly is the education. So, how does? How do you? How do other countries get the attention of their people? Uh, to say, you need to do this, Uh, this is important. 
Because one of the things that we hear quite often in the U.S. is people's attention spans are short or people simply you, you simply can't get people to believe the facts that you present to them because they have their own ideas about things. So how do you get around that problem? How do you suggest getting around that problem? Um. I think what has actually, so I, as I understand you ask, why, how Estonians are using technology so easily, right? Um, what has happened here in early 90s was um, that Estonia did not have the first um, generation of computerization as, as it was happening in the West. So uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was this old Soviet technology, which was very old. So uh, the only option what could could have been uh, chosen was to just uh, start using the newest technology off the shelf, mm-hmm. which actually happened. And uh, all the public and private sector uh, organizations then were acquiring this very new technology. They They became familiar with this and they started to use it. And so there was... Um, the Estonians created some uh, ecosystem um, of based on this na- secure national ID or the secure authentication, this ID card, which is a two-factor authentication in cyber speak. Um, and um, this um, uh, ecosystem was created around this technology, which enabled very quickly um, and very efficiently to carry out all the tasks, whether in the government or in the private sector. For example, um, instead of employing uh, an army of bureaucrats who are checking your tax files and you are uh, making sure that your tax files are uh, uh, filed properly, there is an automation in the tax system which already is um, giving the tax authority all the numbers which are coming from Estonian organizations. So each organization which is paying uh, salary to you is sending simultaneously the same information to the tax authority. And you just then authenticate whether this is right or wrong. You have the right, of course, to change this information and and check everything and so on. So basically the system is um, already... um, in a way uh, uh, automated so that um, citizens do not have to do the manual work on checking all the facts or checking all the databases. So the databases talk to each other and they know, like, uh, I, I need to renew my driver's license. I get a notice, you need to renew it. So, so you need to go to the eye doctor then and by then you need to go to the office and I can renew my driver's license. Most of the tasks and steps <coughs> I can do online. I don't have to go several times into to this motor vehicle department, as you call them in the US. Uh, so I can go once to just mm-hmm. to the doctor and the second time to have a, my signature because I think driver's license is something important. They need you in office too, physically. Mm-hmm. But you can do many, many of those transactions with your government without showing up physically. And the same uh, transactions are used by the private sector. You can uh, authenticate yourself via bank 
And actually, if you, if you want to then cross-use the government or private sector service, it doesn't matter whether you entered via the government uh, portal or the private sector portal, you can, you can use both, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's an interoperable digital ecosystem, which uh, makes your life so easy. Mm-hmm. And this is why you're the ambassador for cybersecurity here. I am not because of this, I think. I just uh, was happening to be a person after the 2007 attacks uh, who was tasked to put together the national cyber strategy. So I have uh, my own uh, first-hand experience of building up uh, the resilient national cyber system. So I am not a a usual diplomat or just a diplomat. I actually can speak cyber talk. (laughs) No, that wasn't my intention to to send that message that you are a diplomat who just happens to be doing this. But the exceptional knowledge that you have and the training that you have led to your being chosen to do this very difficult work and certainly your experience that you just laid out. And I have to tell you, um, I talk to people like you all the time. Um, who are skilled and trained in cybersecurity. And it is, this is the first time that I've actually had an extended ex- explanation of all of these um, elements of the discipline put in such a way that it's called layman's language. Mm-hmm. So that uh, I, you know, can understand this and, and in turn pass it on to others. That's so why I was chosen to be a diplomat. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying, <laughs> precisely. So, um, well, is there any other elements of your work that you want to talk about that we haven't discussed? I think uh, one of the very important aspects to remember when we talk about the future of cyberspace and all the future of all these issues is, of course, to to um, stress the idea that. Um, I think we have a collective responsibility in our uh, Western liberal democracies to make sure that uh, um, with the very rapid um, development of the technology, we would not build a, a very um, deepening surveillance state and we still are able to keep up people's privacy. Privacy, as you say in the US. Uh, or in the U- UK, I think they say privacy. That's the UK. That's the UK thing. Yeah, you privacy said. is right. And, uh, uh, and you're very good with languages, aren't you? Well, I live in the US, but sometimes I get mixed up uh, on pronunciations. I'm sorry, I did. I got you off track. But um, because the, what we see now uh, worldwide is uh, authoritarian regimes um, using technology um, uh, extensively for censorship and strengthening of uh, of their political um, suppression agenda. And technology is, of course, the best way to do it because uh, you can you can control people totally when you are controlling them via the information technology because everybody is using those apps, everybody is using social media, everybody is using all the time something uh, digital. So, um, and and we also have to related to this agenda. We also have to look into the issue of. Uh, how the future of internet uh, looks like, because if we are not able to protect the neutrality of the internet and interoperability of the worldwide internet, and um, and it will be changing into something which is uh, the um, internet of China or internet of Russia, and then maybe some internet of Europe and and uh, and the internet for the rest of the world, with uh, 
it, it will be not an interoperable internet what we know anymore, but it will be a different internet. So mm -hmm. I think these kind of challenges are there but that we we will have. And we have to be, and this is a task for cyber diplomats as well, to make sure that um, our um, positive agenda related to the um, uh, very rapid evolve, evolving technology will be preserved in the context of pressures coming from the authoritarian part of the world. Mm -hmm. so. How many ambassadors like you are there? How many counterparts do you have that are actually ambassadors at large for cybersecurity? Uh, a couple. Uh, in, in Europe, we would have um, the uh, German, uh, the Dutch, um, the French, Uh, there is one in Finland. Uh, the Brits are, do not have an ambassador, but somebody called cyber director. So a majority of the cyber mature countries have some role like this. Mm -hmm. uh, worldwide, we have Australia, uh, Japan. And uh, the US used to have a special uh, cyber coordinator uh, direct reporting to the um, Secretary of State Uh, but it was restructured and now they might uh, revise this role and now it's allocated under the um, one of the assistant secretary uh, under secretaries or something mm. so it's so there is an equivalent in the US system but a special role was restructured yes is it your understanding or belief that this role needs to be at a high level for it, it to work it needs to be at the visible level and also uh Uh, it has to be a senior person with special knowledge to make the role eff effective. Uh, the temptation might be, of course, to allocate the role to another diplomat. But I would think that uh, what makes this role really efficient is also the special knowledge about the cyber issues. Um, uh, if the country decides to do this kind of... Uh, or to create this kind of post, it has also keep in mind the fact that uh, it cannot be just one person, it has to be a team, and it has to be uh, the team with special knowledge on those issues. Is there anything else you want to add? Well, thank you for uh, your interest towards Estonia. Well, thank you for your time. I, I feel so much more educated about all of this, and I, I certainly appreciate the time. Thank you. That's Haley Tirma Clark. She's the Ambassador-at-Large for Cybersecurity in Estonia. Coming up in our next episode, there are more than 10,000 spies in Washington. Who are they? What are they after? I want to know what the President of the United States is hiding from me. You can operate right here in Washington, and if you're good, the FBI will never see it. How do they do it, and can they be caught? Answers to all those questions coming up right here on Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green. One word at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. That's jgreen at wtop.com. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. Also, check out my national security newsletter, Inside the Skiff. You can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, everybody. 
you have to check out this amazing new true crime podcast. It's called 22 Hours, An American Nightmare. It's about a murder that took place in Washington. A family and their housekeeper were held hostage for 19 hours before being killed when the murderer set their mansion on fire. And you'll be shocked by what they went through during those 19 hours. And you won't believe how they found the guy. I won't ruin the ending, but all I will say is pizza crust. Podcast One teamed up with my fellow award-winning journalist at WTOP, Megan Cloherty and Jack Moore, to put this story together. Download 22 Hours, an American Nightmare, on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. New episodes every Monday. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.